With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Alicia Thompson. Alicia is a writer, reader, and Paramore superfan and joins me today to discuss her latest book, Love in the Time of Serial Killers. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Alicia. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very happy to have you here. And uh, I'm going to ask you the question I ask everybody to begin, which is, Alicia, where does your story as an author begin? Um, well, I guess like most writers, pretty early as far as just being a, a fan of, you know, reading and fan of books. And um, when I was in kindergarten, I remember I said I wanted to be an Arthur was how I pronounced it at the time. And my teacher had this like big, you know, cork board that had like authors on it. Uh, Roald Dahl was a big one that I read a lot of, um, you know, his work. And I just really wanted to be an Arthur up on the cork board. Uh, and then I've kind of just always been writing, you know, I did a lot of um, just writing, you know, poetry, short stories, you know, whatever, and then um, got my first book published back in 2009. It was a YA novel. And then I wrote a four, a four book middle grade series that was co-authored with Olympic gymnast Dominic Mochianu. And that was back in like 2012. And then this is my adult romance debut. Oh, look at that. Lots of lots of early success. So what was what was it like having success kind of way back in 2009? <laughs> well, you know, it's weird, first of all, how different like publishing is even in the last, you know, 10, 12, 13 years. Um, for one thing, like Twitter was either not a thing or it wasn't a very big thing. I don't really remember. I don't think I was on it either way. So social media is one thing that I think has just changed a lot. Like I remember finding it really hard to find you know, an author community. Whereas now I think that's a lot easier with social media to, you know, find other writers who are doing it. Um, and I think in a way, like having a book come out when I was younger, it was, it was cool. Obviously I was, you know, feeling pretty good about myself, but it also made it really difficult because then I didn't have another book come out for like 10 years. And it wasn't that I wasn't writing. I was still writing. 
um, it was just, you know, I wasn't writing anything that people wanted to buy, I guess. So it was, you know, it was kind of, kind of hard actually. Yes. I mean, lightning strikes were the first one. And then it, it takes a while for you to get that, that next one out there. What did mm -hmm. that do to your confidence at the time? Oh, it was in the toilet. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, not great, not great for my confidence, but you know, it's, it's hard. Cause it's like, you just have to keep writing more stuff. And so, I mean, between those books that came out and this book, I've probably written, I don't even know, six, seven, eight other manuscripts, you know, most of which are just kind of sitting on my computer. Um, and I think that that perseverance part of it is definitely, you know, the hardest part to kind of keep going, even though you keep getting rejected. Yeah, I mean, perseverance, if there's one thing I've learned, you know, as, you know, being an author myself, but also just in, in all the people I've talked to is that it really takes a lot of perseverance to to become a published author. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's not something that happens overnight. There's a lot of heartbreak, a lot of heartache along the way. But those who who kind of continue, you know, to follow that passion, um, you know, eventually, you know, most of them, many of them, I shouldn't say most, um, do get rewarded for their perseverance. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why, I think I've read this advice somewhere where they basically said, if you can take a break from writing, and you feel fine, and you don't feel the need to go back to it, then don't like, just honestly, it's too much. It's too much pain and rejection and trouble if you don't love it. So I really do think that, you know, people who write people who keep going, no matter what happens with, you know, a specific manuscript or a short story or whatever. Um, you have to do it out of love at some point, because otherwise you just won't, you won't keep at it. Right. I mean, you're, you're doing it out of love. You're, yeah, and you're not necessarily doing it for the money either, are you? No, definitely not. <laughs> um, well, what can you tell me about love in the time of serial killers? So it is an adult rom-com and it's about a woman named Phoebe Walsh, who is a PhD candidate and she's studying true crime. That's what her dissertation is on. And because she is studying true crime, she sees everything through this very like paranoid lens of, you know, at anything could be a true crime episode. If you watch Dateline, you kind of know that feeling that like every single thing in your life all of a sudden becomes very suspect. Um, and she goes back to Florida uh, for the summer so that she can clean out her father's house. Her father passed away earlier that year. And while she's there, she meets um, his neighbor, who's this very, you know, very sweet, very swoony guy. But of course, she just sees him as being, you know, a Ted Bundy wannabe, essentially, like she's, you know, every single thing that he does, um, she takes the wrong way as as being like, the start of a true crime podcast episode. Um, she's probably listening to like Dear John or something, you know, and just can't trust anything he does. Um, but then, you know, of course, I'm not spoiling anything because it's a romance, you know, they end up falling in love, and he's not a serial killer. I feel okay saying that. And yeah. Tell me, you, in my notes here, um, I had a note about you being on uh, in the audience for an episode of 48 Hours. Yes. What, yeah, what's I, what's the backstory there? Um, yeah, so much like Phoebe in my book, I definitely, I read a lot of true crime when I was in high school in particular. And I, um, there was a local murder trial. A teenager had killed her mother and it happened to coincide with my spring break in high school in 10th grade. And so I was like, hey, mom, can I go to this murder trial for my spring break? And it's really to my mom's credit that she said, okay, because I mean, given the nature of this girl's crime, I could see my mom being a little wary. I remember at the time I even told her, I was like, well, she got caught, mom. Like, this is not like, 
you know, this is, I'm not going to be like going to the trial to learn secrets. Um, so I went to the trial that week and they filmed a, you know, 48 hours episode on it. And so there's just this one moment. It's actually really creepy. I was trying to find it the other day to see if I could find like the YouTube clip or something. The camera like pans over, you know, the audience of the trial. And for some reason, I just like sensed that the camera was moving. And so I turn and I look like directly into the camera. And it's a very creepy, weird moment because everybody <laughs> else is just like watching the trial. And I'm just kind of slow turning toward the camera. That's hysterical. And were you able to find it or no? I think I did find it actually. Um, I think I did. And I, I bookmarked it because I was thinking like, oh, maybe I'll do something with this, like on my social media or something, but I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Dateline. Um, is there a better narrator for anything ever than Keith Morrison? No, there is not. I almost interrupted you before you finished the sentence because I knew you were going to say Keith Morrison. Um, I name drop him in the book because he's just the absolute best. There's one episode in particular that I always think about that I couldn't help but reference in the book because I think he deserves every award for it. I mean, I want him narrating if, if they ever did, uh, you know, This Is Your Life, Mike Carlin, which I don't know why anybody would do. But <laughs> if they did, I would want him narrating it, even if there's no murder. Hopefully there's no murder involved. Um, That's the only thing is, I guess, like his narration could maybe like put a dark spin on whatever he was narrating. But I, I agree. I would have him narrate anything. Yeah, it's part of his brand. Have you ever see um, SNL when Bill Hader does his Keith Morrison impersonation? I think I've seen it a couple times, but I don't know if it's like a running bit. Oh, it's I think they only did it like twice, maybe, because it is pretty it's somewhat obscure. Um, mm -hmm. but it's, it's really, it's really well done. I mean, it's, it's very funny for any fan of Keith Morrison, you'll appreciate Bill Hader's, uh, impersonation. There's a, uh, an Instagram account that's like Keith leans on things or something. And all it is, is Keith Morrison leaning on things. And it's a delight. <laughs> uh, very cool. What would you do if you weren't an author? What did you ever think about, um, you know, an, an alternative career? Well, I do have a day job. So, What's um, job? yeah, I'm, I'm in the legal field. So I'm like a legal assistant paralegal as my day job. So, I mean, I guess that's what I would do. I guess while well, you're doing it. So you're living yeah. the dream. Living yeah, the dream. Living, living the double dream, which is a lot. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, most authors, you know, do have to support themselves by by other means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember reading um, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, big magic which is all about creativity and stuff and one thing she said in there that really resonated with me is that sometimes for some people um putting all of your kind of eggs in the creative basket actually is very difficult like it's it's almost like emotionally like creatively stifling to do that because you're so stressed about you know my money has to come from this creative thing you know you're worried about your output you know all that kind of stuff so don't get me wrong. If I was making like Suzanne Collins money, I would absolutely just focus on writing um, and not worry about, you know, any of the day job stuff. I had to, I had to leave work early today. I had to tell my boss basically like I have to you know leave early because I have to go home and record this podcast. Um, and he was like, Oh, good luck. And it was very, very nice of him. So I'm lucky that my day job, I think fits pretty well with writing and I can work around it, but it, it is a challenge. Yeah, no doubt. Lot, lots of things to, uh, to juggle in the air. Well, I do have some fun questions for us, and, and these are all designed to you know, get to know you a little bit better as an author. Uh, I always like to start off with pop culture. Uh, first one being, um, Alicia, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were growing up? Hmm. 
I definitely remember watching the 90210 Melrose Place block that was on. And I, I was really into those, really into 90210. Was that, was that a Wednesday night or Thursday night? I can't remember. I thought I thought it was Wednesday, but I'm not positive. Yeah, about I think it. I think it was Wednesday on Fox. We used to watch it in college. Yeah. Um, just to date myself a little bit. I mean, we used to run home from wherever we were for eight o'clock and nine o'clock to catch uh, 90210 and, and Melrose. Well, and it's so funny because I'm trying to think of the age I was when I was watching them and I was probably too young to be watching them, but it just goes to show that there's a lot of stuff that just goes right over your head at that age. Cause I just don't really remember, you know, them being like super salacious. I don't remember being shocked by the stuff, but there probably was stuff that if I was like, you know, if my kids wanted to watch it, I'd be like, nah, I don't know about that. You know, um, this is different yeah. how our perspective is. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think it was too salacious. And Melrose maybe more so because it had that more of an adult audience. But my claim to fame was that I was the same year as the 90210 kids. So that show started my junior year in high school. And that's when they were everybody but David Silver was a junior, mm. I think. Um, so you we, got to really grow up with them. I did. We went to college together. We had our first jobs together, you know. Um, mm -hmm. you had to watch all... kelly just be put through it they just put her through it kelly kelly's coke addiction uh donna's what happened to donna was she she wasn't bulimic was she um she just looked it <laughs> <laughs> i think I, I always i can't remember if i read this somewhere or if i just you know made it up but i always thought that they didn't give donna as much stuff because that was aaron spelling's daughter yeah and so she doesn't you know they, they and that's i always felt like that's why they put it all on kelly was because they were like well we can't we can't have Donna go through all this stuff. That's right. The boss's daughter. Right. Oh boy. So Dino 2 and Melrose, anything else come to mind? Um, I was a big fan of like the Simpsons SNL. I watched a lot of that growing up. I had all the like SNL, um, like VHS tapes that were, you know, the best of Adam Sandler, the best of Eddie Murphy. And I would put those on all the time. I would also tape like SNL, like off you know my TV and then, you know, rewatch episodes. Um, so I was really big into that as well. Yeah, yeah. But someone once threw this hypothesis by me. I wonder if it's true for you too, or they're supported by you. Um, your favorite SNL cast was the cast when you were in high school. Does that ring true at all for you or no? I think it makes sense. I mean, I'm trying to think of who is actually on the cast because I did watch all those tapes of like older cast members. So like I was a little young for say like Adam Sandler, and yet I feel like I grew up with Adam Sandler because I was always watching those clips and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, my my cast was probably like Chris Kattan, Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry, Molly Shannon. And I still have like a great fondness for them. And I, I do think no matter what, that all the casts that come after are definitely to you like subpar. Yeah. Like I, I like cast members who've come after, but as a, as a whole cast, I'm always like, oh, you know, it's just not as good. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up with, um, I mean, my high school years, you know, you had Mike Myers, um, Dana Carvey. Mm, that um, was a golden time i mean it was just a, a phil hartman oh my gosh phil hartman was so funny yeah um that was an absolute golden time but i also love like the bill Hader years you know bill mm -hmm. Hader, and then you know those powerhouse um uh women um who's well, i don't know why their names are escaping me right now but molly shannon and mm -hmm. um who's i that? love like maya rudolph maya rudolph yes 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 who's the other big one um from bridesmaids uh Kristen Wig. Kristen Wig. Kristen Wig. How do I forget Kristen Wig? Gilly. I love that. I love her. She is so funny. So funny. Yeah. Fred Armisen. 
Oh, those I love are- I, I love SNL and I love um, SNL gossip. Like I love reading like memoirs or, you know, nonfiction about like SNL. I just all the tea of, you know, who's doing drugs and who is sleeping with who. And I love it all. Did you not to promote any other podcasts on this show, but um, Dana Carvey and David Spade have one called Fly on the Wall and they only interview people affiliated with SNL. So other cast members and, and, you know, popular hosts, it's, it's a fantastic listen. If you want a little inside scoop into the SNL. Yeah, universe. I definitely will have to. Yeah. How about musical artists? Who do you like to listen to or who are you, who do you listen to growing up? Who do you like to listen to now? Um, so growing up, definitely like in high school, I was a big, you know, punk fan. So I listened to a lot of punk music and a lot of music that, you know, I would have, been embarrassed to call punk but I still liked it like the offspring you know like I I wouldn't have revealed that to a real punk fan but (laughs) to myself I like loved the offspring and I listened to every single album of theirs um now I'm you know as my bio states a Paramore super fan and I am a big fan of Tegan and Sarah Phoebe Bridgers Harry Styles a lot of different stuff Harry Styles yeah my daughter is uh going to two two Harry Styles shows in New York I guess he's doing a bunch of bunch of dates at the garden and she's seeing him she just saw him like a few months ago and now she's well if she has an extra ticket i tried to get tickets to the (laughs) harry styles at madison square garden which he he had like 10 dates and yeah i didn't get tickets yeah yeah she got she got him and she was in a tizzy because my amex card on Ticketmaster was uh out of date i guess it was expired Mm. and um and so she had to call like she couldn't get to me. She was calling a friend's mom to get an Amex card because it was an Amex presale. Mm. You'd think the world was ending, but I mean, um, I'll be honest, like that was a real parenting fail on your part. You got to get your Amex card updated <laughs> on that Ticketmaster for Harry Styles. I mean, I that's know, just... I know it all turned out OK, though. She's going. She's got tickets to two shows. So, yeah, she'll um, be fine. She'll she'll be OK. Uh, how about feeding your inner child? Do you do you have an inner child? If so, how do you feed her? Oh. Uh, I haven't really thought about that. That that almost feels like a therapist couch type question. Um, <laughs> well, I've been through a lot of therapy, so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, honestly, like reading is one of the biggest ways that I probably do that. I mean, I've just always loved to read since I was a kid. And I still, I get a lot of pleasure out of just reading a lot, reading a lot of different, you know, variety of books. And I mean, that's probably one way that I feel like I'm still very much in touch with, you know, the thing that gave me so much joy when I was a kid. Right. Right. And now you're an Arthur. So exactly. <laughs> um, what about, I mean, keeping with the therapy theme, um, in what ways, if any, is writing therapeutic for you? Um, well, I think that I feel like I always discover something about myself or the way I see the world or something when I write. And Love and Time Circulars was no exception to that a lot of Phoebe's journey where she kind of goes from being, you know, very like closed off and prickly and not wanting to need anybody. And then kind of learning, like, it's okay to open up and it's okay to, you know, be vulnerable. It's definitely a, you know, something that I've had to go through myself and, and struggled with of just like wanting to be an island, wanting to not really need people, but, you know, realizing that you do and that it's okay to, to just openly say that sometimes and be like, I really need attention right now, or I really need validation right now. That's the kind of thing that would just make my skin crawl to even think about doing it. Um, But, you know, I've tried to be better about it. Yeah. I think we all need validation to, to some extent, you know, you, you want a little pat on the back to know that you're doing a good job or that somebody's appreciating what you're doing. I think, you know, as much as we need persistence, we also need a little bit of encouragement and validation from people. Yeah, definitely. 
I feel like at work in particular, I'm very, um, I'm very transactional and I'm very business-like and I'm kind of like, you know, I'm just here to do my job. I'm not, you know, not here to make friends. Um, but at the same time, like if anybody gives me even the smallest compliment, if my boss says like, you're the best, I mean, it, it means a lot to me. And I really like, I think about that for like, you know, weeks afterward where I'm like, oh, you know, he thought I was the best. And it was probably like a throwaway comment, but it's that kind of thing that I think, you know, it's not, um, I don't know. You don't have to be ashamed of, of saying that that means something to you or that you want that, you know, where yeah. sometimes I do feel that way where I feel like, oh, I mean, I don't care. I don't need to be told, you know, that's what the money is for. You know, I don't need to be told that I'm doing a good job, but then you know what, when I'm told I'm doing a good job, it feels really nice. Yeah, absolutely. How about um, the blank page? What, 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 what emotions do you experience when you're just staring at a blank sheet of paper or a blank computer screen, depending on how you write? What is the, what does a blank page do for you? Hmm. Definitely a lot of anxiety. I mean, for me, the the starting is generally the hardest part. Like once I get started, I feel like the writing goes a lot more smoothly. But just staring at the blank page is nerve wracking sometimes. One thing I do sometimes is if I'm listening to a song while I'm writing, sometimes I listen to even like the same song over and over because I'm trying to get into a certain vibe. Sometimes I'll actually type out the lyrics of the song. Um, and it's a way to just kind of like fill the page and kind of get my fingers typing. And also I'm very smug about how fast I type. And so I always really like take a lot of personal pride in like keeping up with the lyrics of the song. So that's a little exercise I do sometimes just, you know, to kind of face down the blank page. Very cool. And how about, I mean, you've been publishing now since 2009. Um, what, what lessons about publishing do you think you may have learned the hard way? Um, well, as I kind of alluded to before with the whole, you know, just a career being a lot longer and, and needing a lot more perseverance. You know, one thing that I think I didn't fully appreciate when I was younger is publishing is not like, it's not like a board game where like you get on the first square and then you just make your way through all the squares. It's kind of like one of those board games where you can just roll the dice and then all of a sudden you're back to start. And um, that was something that I didn't, I just didn't fully appreciate, you know, that like, once you get one book sold, that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you're going to have every single thing you ever write, you know, picked up by a publisher. And um, that seems really naive. But I think when I was younger, I, I really thought like you just get on it. Once you get the agent, once you get the publishing deal, like you're on it, you know, you're on that game board. Uh, and so it was, you know, I think a, a good experience, but definitely a humbling one to realize that that's not true. Right. Right. And certainly just getting that first success is not something you should take for granted because it uh, mm -hmm. doesn't guarantee, doesn't guarantee future, future success. Um, uh, last one up would be uh, words of advice. If you can go back in time um, and give the younger Alicia some words of advice, what would you tell that younger punk rock listening Alicia who, who enjoys a 90210 in Melrose place every now and then? How would you encourage her? Hmm. I would say I would probably encourage her to put herself out there more and like specifically try to connect with other people and meet other people. I think there was a long time where I felt just really lonely in like the writing community. I had a few writing friends. I went to grad school, you know, for, to get my MFA. So I always had, you know, some writing community, but I always felt very disconnected from just the community at large, I guess. And I felt like um, you know, here are all these other authors who all seem to be friends and support each other and read each other's work. And it was that thing where I felt like I, I wanted that. And yet I never put myself out to have it, you know? So it's kind of like you're sitting at home and you're like, how come nobody's inviting me to anything? But then you also realize like, 
you've never given any indication that you would want to be invited or, you know. Um, so I would just, I guess, tell myself to put myself out there a little bit more. All right. Get out there, be, be part of that community. And uh, yeah, there is a community aspect to writing. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I think many of us think of it as a solitary activity because when we're writing, it's typically, you know, we're alone, we're, you know, kind of off by ourselves being introverted. But, you know, on the other side of things, there are, there are writers groups out there. There are people you can network with. There are people who will read your work and give you feedback on it. Um, you mm-hmm. can workshop some stuff with people. So I always like to tell aspiring authors, you know, to, to seek out those opportunities because um, they, they can be helpful. Yeah, definitely. Well, we have been talking to Alicia Thompson and her about her book, uh, Love in the Time of Serial Killers. Uh, Alicia, this has been a fun conversation. If people want to get a hold of you, do you have a website or social media handles you want to throw out there for everybody? Yeah, sure. Um, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Alicia Books, so A-L-I-C-I-A Books. And I have a website, aliciathompsonbooks.com. And I have a newsletter, which is aliciabooks.substack.com. Very cool. Alicia, thank you for joining me and, and leaving work early to talk about uh, your life, your career, and of course, love in the time of serial killers. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe.